And then we'll pray and turn to the explanation of God's word. Uh, Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. May God have a blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now to hear from you, to hear the explanation of your word. And as we come to you, Lord, we ask that, that you would teach us not just information, but that you would teach us to know, that you would teach us to, to move beyond just hearing words and saying, yes, the Bible says that, and I believe it, but, but help us to believe in a way that we seize the truth, that we lay hold of it, and we say, that's what is true, and I, I am going to live in the good of that. I am going to build my foundation and my, my, my life on that. I am going to live from this truth. Because the Bible says that even the demons believe. They don't, they don't need sermons to teach them good theology. They know the truth already, and yet they cower in fear from the God of the universe because the knowledge that they have does not change them. Father, we pray that, that we would not be like them, but that when we learn the truth, we would put the truth to work in our lives, we would act upon the truth, knowing that you are good, that you have done great things for us, that you have given us your very great and precious promises, and all we need to do is to say, yes, we are thankful, and then to walk in the good of them. Father, we pray that as we consider hope this morning, if there are any who are hopeless, that you would encourage and embolden them to live lives of great expectation of good from you. And we pray that, that we would build that, Lord, that, that those of us who already have hope, those who are hopeless, as we consider and refine our hopes, I pray that we would build them not on a, a false foundation of, of, hey, something good might happen, but on the foundation of God has promised good to us. And he can be counted on to deliver what he has promised because he is good. May our trust in your character be firm. May our hope be great. And may you be glorified in all that we do and say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me tell you a horrible story that's unrelated to Christmas, uh, but, but one that has stuck in my mind. There are sometimes when where, the, where something that I have heard, whether it's a, a sermon outline or an illustration, it's just got such intense 
like uh, intellectual gravity for me that I can't escape it. And this story is one of them that I heard years ago uh, as, I, as I Googled the story, a, another, a blog that led me to a paper that was where I found this story in all of its truth said, I found this little illustration because I was looking to use this in a, in a sermon because he'd heard it years before. And I thought, that's me. I identify with nameless guy on the internet in 2014. Uh, who, also, who also had heard this story. So, so here's the story. I read the, the research paper behind the original work, so I'm not just passing down some, you know, preaching fairy tale. This actually happened. There was a man by the name of Kurt Richter, and he wore a lab coat and carried a clipboard, and he was studying the phenomena of what at that time was called sudden voodoo death in human beings. You guys are supposed to be like, oh, Sudden death or something. A soldier flung into the harsh conditions of battle, exposed to the horrors, retreats into himself, closes off, and within a short period of time dies. A man eats a meal in which he is told that there is, is poison. He's told this meal has poison in it, and, and in horror and shock, he, repeat, he, he retreats into himself. He's, he's got a tremendous amount of stress and dread that comes upon him, and then he dies, even though the meal is not poisoned. A tribal woman eats taboo food, and knowing that this happens, she dies hours later. Seeking to explain this, and because he lives in the 1950s, and doesn't share our sensibilities, Dr. Kurt Richter put several hundred rats into specially made containers, you know, five or six at a time. You find the, the, the paper, although you don't want to look at this. I look at this stuff for you. Um, they're, they're these horrifying little chambers, about five of them, and they've got running water pouring into them. And he would take these rats, and he would put them in there, and he would let them swim, seeing how long it would take them to die. What's up with that? The rats would swim for different lengths of time. A rat which was just left in the water would uh, sink to the bottom and die in about 15 minutes. But rats that were occasionally rescued, taken out of the containers, given an opportunity to dry off, maybe given a little food and something to drink, and then put back into the water would swim for hours. And in warm water and given frequent interruptions, they would somehow, sometimes swim for as long as 60 hours before dying. Do you, do you see that? The difference is 15 minutes unassisted. 60 hours with, with breaks, somewhere around 10 or 12 minutes. After reviewing all the different factors, the breed, the age of the rat, the temperature of the water, Dr. Richter concluded that the rats that died earliest died from hopelessness. And the ones that swam the longest were the ones that believed ultimately that there would be some chance of escape, some hope of rescue. Now, what does that prove? One, it proves that freakishly scary stories like this tend to stick with me for a long time. I don't know when I first heard this or when I thought, wow, that's good sermon material, because I never thought that. I've always thought, like, that's pretty twisted. Second thing, never trust anyone in a lab coat if you are a rat. <laughs> if the guy has glasses on and is wearing a lab coat, run the other direction. Uh, number three is this scientists in the 50s killed lots of rats in their experiments. 
And while I'm happy I did not need to grow up with the rats, the scientists seem to be unbothered by the watery graves that their experiment partners wound up in. A simple, thank you rats, we honor your sacrifice at the end of that paper might have made all the difference in when I read it. It just felt so very cold. It's like he never expresses any concern for what he's done. But maybe that's just the spirit of the age. But I think this. Many times uh, in, 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 in reviewing or thinking about this story in the back of my mind, I've made the analogy with hopelessness. And, and the analogy is, is clear here. Uh, human beings left without hope will, will die. That's the conclusion of, of the article. A, a man who does not think there is an escape from, from the, the power which is coming against him, a man who thinks that he will die from poisoning, can in, encounter such an enormous, uh, uh, stressful situation that he will give up all hope and expire. And the analogy that's, that's, that's used there is this idea of somehow that, that, that God is the one who gives hope and he rescues uh, these, these, these rats from these, these watery chambers. But I, I think that misses the point and sets up a strange analogy, a horrifying analogy. The God of the universe calls himself Father. He teaches in the scripture that he is good, and he has designed us to be fueled by, to run on hope. And there are good, solid and many reasons to, 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 to have hope. And we ought to know what hope is, know the grounds by which we have hope. If we're going to escape this idea that somehow God is in heaven and we are running some kind of maze and maybe he will rescue us. This is the thing. In this analogy, all these rats died, right? Is that, is that what it means to hope, to have false Assurances that maybe someday God will intervene and help us if, if, if we're in a desperate enough condition? What, is that what hope is? I don't think so. Let's talk about hope. This is one of those big words that you see plastered around stores as you, uh, you know, work through shopping for different things during the Christmas season. It's a, it's a word, though, that, 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 that has a religious connotation, but many times in our mind has no content behind it. So let's talk about what that means. First, hope is not faith. Okay? Faith is an act of worship. Faith says yes when God speaks. It says, I believe that. And then it looks to God and embraces who God is to us in the present. God says, this is my attitude toward you. And faith says, I believe that. Faith is different from hope. Hope is also a spiritual act of worship. Hope looks to God and worships based on how God will be to us in the future. Hope believes. Hope comes from faith. There is no hope without faith. Hope believes what God says will be ours, and it believes that it will be ours at some future time. We rejoice, the Bible says, in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of future resurrection, of reward, of eternal life, of peace and unity with God in eternity. Faith embraces God in the present, but hope is full of expectation for the future. Hope looks to God first as its main focus and then to his benefits. 
First to God and then to his benefits. First Peter 1.21 says, Your faith and hope are in God. He is the source of hope, first and foremost. And then it looks to his benefits. First Peter 1.13, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We will be like him. We will have eternal life, even though now we have his favor. That's something to be believed and trusted by faith. But we hope in the future that it will be so. That grace, greater grace, will be ours. Romans 15, 13 says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Things will change. I will have more blessing from God. And you might think, oh, that sounds so selfish and stingy. God is, is delighted to call himself Father and to give and give and give. And we are right in a childlike, simple, non-demanding, non-particular way to say, you promised to give me this, I will receive it. Thank you. It's good. True hope is not found in bosses, in Christmas bonuses, in elections, in presidential candidates. It's not found in guys or girls or marriages or health. Psalm 146.3 says this, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. We need to look beyond the things that are in front of us and to not hope in them because men and women and economies and finances and plans fail. But the God who promises never fails. He is always reliable. Well, you may ask then, but how should we hope in a world of pain and suffering and difficulty? I think first, let's just be honest. Most of us have it pretty great here, right? So, like, let's ratchet down the preacher rhetoric just a little bit. And that's not to undermine anything that you might be going through personally, but, but one of the reasons I think Americans feel pain so keenly is that we often... I'm talking about the majority of people don't come to me and say, I have an well, come to me and say, this is an exception. If you're suffering, then let's talk about it. But most people uh, have a very low tolerance for pain because we have so much comfort. That's just the truth. Many of us, as the song goes, have fountains of blessings. We have cars. No one is starving. You might be hungry, but no one really, in the communities that most of us interact with is starving. When somebody's starving, people bring them food. They might, they might be hungry, but there are ways of getting food. Our communities are pretty safe. Our clothes are pretty warm, and our food tastes pretty good. What most of us are, are worried about is that, is that we look at the situations of others, and we say, that could be me at some point in the future. I could have a really bad day or a few really bad weeks thinking of, of, of our end, and that causes us anxiety. 
Now, there are some who suffer with chronic illnesses. This is true. And there are some who suffer with circumstances which at times are beyond their ability to cope with. But this is, is the exception, not the rule. But what I'll say as we go through uh, the remainder of, of what I'm going to talk about is uh, directed and, and, and able to, to give hope there as well. My, my, my prayer is that we would separate ourselves from the things that people say at times. People say things like, how can there be a good God when there's so much suffering in the world? Well, we are holding God responsible for the mismanagement of the earth caused by men and women. We're, we're holding God responsible for the cruelty of people. God has said on numerous occasions, stop that. And he says that there will be a reckoning one day. And so we remove ourselves from the abstract and we look at the specific. Most of, of what we are worried about is future anxiety. How will I die? What will I do if I get fired? Behind that is the real deep anxiety that all human beings grapple with. If and when I meet the God who created me, what will happen. To quote the great theologian Han Solo, <laughs> we all have a really bad feeling about this. And that's expected. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. The Bible says that we have sinned, we have refused to embrace the good which God says, this is good, this is my will, you ought to do this, and we have said, Nope, I'm not, I'm not feeling that right now. You know, I, I don't have to do that. Or God has said, cease to do this wrong thing. And we've said, nope, that's my identity or that's where my joy comes from. And, and we, have, we have refused to obey him. And so what we think, when we, when we think of, uh, of, of judgment, we tend to think of God as the guy with the lab coat and the checklist, right? And we think, I am in serious trouble because I have not lived the way God calls me to. We expect him to be the guy who drowns rats. Bad rats get drowned, right? And all rats are bad rats. Think about it. You may love animals in your heart, but would you go and eat at a restaurant where there are rats? No, we all say, don't go there. There's rats at that restaurant, right? And we expect that someone will come in and kill them, not dry them off and treat them kindly and put little clothes on them and set them at the tables and give them little teeny tiny plates and drinks and, and have the waiters come out and serve the meals, right? That does not happen. That's not what we do with rats. But think about what the scriptures teach if you're identifying with the guy in the lab coat and the rats. If you're thinking, you know, what hope do I have? First is this, grace is obtainable. Romans 10.13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I am going to die because of my sin. I have no hope of, of, of having my sin lifted off of me because of any good deed. I have done too many wrong things. How could God forgive me? The Bible promises that if we call upon the Lord and say, forgive me, I have sinned. He will say, I will forgive you. 
Grace is obtainable. We can be delivered from sin. We can expect eternal life. We can know that we have peace with God. And peace with God depends on two things. First is the work of Christ. When Jesus rises from the dead and speaks to his disciples about the message that they are to proclaim, he says this in Luke 24, 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. What did he suffer for? As a a political prisoner, as as an enemy of Rome? No, he suffers by taking the sins of human beings upon himself and he pays the penalty for it. This is the legal principle that you cannot be held in double jeopardy, right? If you stand trial and you are acquitted, they can't do the trial over again. You have been acquitted. Jesus goes to the cross and takes the penalty for all those who will put their faith and trust in him. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. All people need to hear that God will forgive and show grace. Grace is obtainable and it is built, founded on the work of Christ on the cross. But it is given out, it is distributed by God because of his grace. Because he's gracious. Romans 5, 2. Through him, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Why, why, why are we able to say, I have been delivered from my sins and I know that I will receive good things from God? Because God is gracious and he says, if you put your faith and trust in my son, then I will give you all good things. And hope says, yes. Faith believes it and says that that God is reconciled to me at this moment and I am good with him. And hope says, I fully expect to receive nothing else but good from God. In our culture, we've ruined hope with the phrase, I hope so, right? I hope so is something that we say when, when, when somebody we're, we're close to and we've been disappointed by before, you know, when we say, hey, you, pull up your grades, right? And the kid then responds back and says, I will. And we say, I hope so, right? We're, in, we're implying that, it is a situation that will likely not come to pass when we say, I hope so, right? I'll pay you back, I promise. I hope so. But in the scripture, it's not that way. Hope means I have a firm expectation that this is how it will be. I have a firm expectation of a resurrection. I have a firm expectation that that I will dwell with God forever. I have a firm expectation that every single promise written in this scripture, when I have a need and suddenly I say, oh, this is God's word to me in this situation, that, that God will follow through on it, that I have no cause or need for anxiety because he is there for me. I have a firm expectation, not, well, I hope he'll deliver me. 
I hope so. Hope. John 1.12 says this, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The right to be called the child of God. Now you may say, well, I hope that's what it'll be, but that's not hope. That is unbelief. When we hear the word and it describes how God will be to us in the future, if we believe the gospel, then we are to challenge our unbelief. We'll talk about killing some enemies of hope in, in just a moment. But, but, but first, it's important to identify where the, where the root comes from. We, we have been abandoned by people. People have failed us. We have learned to, to be safe. And so we, we, we expect bad things to happen. And we don't believe that anyone can be fully relied on all the time, not even ourselves. And so we say, I hope so. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And that means that we can have hope that we will be rescued, dried off, given a table and a meal and a warm robe for an unworthy rat. I have a firm expectation that this is what it's going to be like. That's what hope says. Hope is expectation and hope is certainty. What's the fruit of hope? It's joy and delight in God. If everything God promised you, if you knew and believed that it would be true at some point in the future, you would be filled with joy. We live in a world, though, that because we encounter difficulties and trials, we fail in faith. It will happen. And what we need is for a brother to pull us, or a sister to pull us aside and to say, hey, Put your hope in God, right? Isn't that what it says in Psalm uh, 41 and 42? Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God, trust in him, and expect that it will be so. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials." Trials cause us to despair. We say maybe the promises of God aren't true, but hope rescues us. Hope enables us to, to break out of despair when we are in the middle of a struggle. We are allowed, we are encouraged to be joyous in the middle of difficulty. When things fail, when the money runs out, when the plans go astray, when expectations are overturned, God remains the same. And we can trust that he will do as he has said. Hope, as William Ames says, is patience toward God by which we constantly cling to him, seeking and expecting blessedness, though we may encounter many evils without the relief of we desire. Isaiah 8:17 says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. 
when, when circumstances aren't turning out as we have predicted and we're, we're beginning to be filled with dread and we're like, where is God? Hope says he will come. He always does. Psalm 37 verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. There is nothing quite like the despair that I feel probably about three hours before I arrive home when I've traveled to Africa. I am just tired of sitting in a plane. I'm sick of being offered food. I don't want to watch another movie. I just want to get out, even if I am cruising at 20,000 feet. I'm like, I just want it to be over. And I begin to uh, think lots of irrational things. Nothing like crazy, just like, what would it be like if I opened the door right now? Like, what would happen? You know, is it like it is on the movies? You know, and then I'm like, just chill, just sit. And then somebody's like, I gotta get up, I gotta go to the bathroom. And I'm like, right? But hope embraces the difficulty, the weariness, the pain, because I know that when the plane lands at Dulles and I power on my phone and I type, are you here? I will see that little signal that indicates that a reply is coming and Nancy will say, yes, she's there. I fully expect that it will be so, and it is. Hope doesn't give up because it knows it has certainty. Hope is expectation, hope is certainty, but hope is also battle. And so we need to fight back against despair, which will come. We might say, I thought I, I thought I was hopeful. I thought I believed. I thought I had faith. Yes, but we all encounter difficulties, and so we need to fight back. We need to say, our hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. For me, he died And in the present, I experience the benefits of that, right? But for me, he lives. And everlasting life and light, he freely gives. We have a firm expectation that we will receive that, that that is how it will be. So let me give you some advice for building a heart of hope in our last few minutes. This is the advice, and it will come across as violent. We started with, with, you know, twisted scientists drowning rats. That's... Let's, let's kind of stay on that theme. This is it. Kill all the enemies of hope in your heart. Theologian and pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones says the problem that most of us encounter when it comes to despair and lack of faith is that we tend to listen to ourselves and not to talk to ourselves. Listen, as a Christian, you believe that there's an enemy of your soul who wants to accuse you and discourage you. And you also believe that you have a fallen flesh that will live with you until you are renewed one day with Christ in glory. And you live in a world that is constantly bombarding you with negative messages that say things like, what you believe is not true, there is no God. So so let me say this. Do you believe that every negative thought that you think every bit of despair, every bit of depression, do you think that you've originated all those thoughts yourself? There is a conspiracy to keep you from being hopeful. And I don't mean a bunch of guys sitting in a room 
picking out television programming while smoking cigars. I mean that spiritual forces, including your own fallen flesh, are conspiring against you to keep you hopeless. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says the main problem is you have not yet learned not to listen to yourself. You must, or you must talk to yourself. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Right? When, when we encounter despair and difficulty and struggle, we're to say, the Lord has been good to me. His word, my hope, secures. We sing it. Do, do we believe it? Kill the enemies of hope in your heart. First, kill the fear of evil punishment in the light of God's grace. Kill the fear of evil punishment in light of God's grace. Enemy number one is fear. Fear is the expectation of evil. Hope is the expectation of good. Psalm 27.3 describes that fear is the opposite of hope. Though an enemy encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be Confident. Confident of what? Of deliverance from the Lord. Hope looks to the grace of God. Fear looks to the just reward of our sins. Rats don't deserve white glove treatment at a restaurant. And so we think that's what's going to happen to me. But the gospel preaches and teaches that we indeed, in fact, will be delivered. And so we need to believe it and embrace it. Martin Luther said something so helpful. We could have a long conversation about this. I don't, I don't have the time to really get into it, but he says this, the love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it, right? We, we think, I see something that I like. You know, I, I grow in a relationship with someone. I like them. I love them, right? We go from like to love. That's not the way God's love works. God's love works this way, Luther says. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. And so when God looks at sinners, we might think, oh, I'm such a dirty, rotten, horrible person. I'm like a, I'm like a rat. God loves us because of his great mercy, not because of our lack of rat-like qualities. Right? That means that if you occasionally act like a rat and suddenly you're like, oh, I'm filled with hopelessness again, your salvation wasn't founded on your goodness or your proper right behavior. It's founded on God's mercy, and that, the Bible says, does not change. We, we fear encountering God in the holiest of holies and, and finding him in all of his purity and believing that he will reject us. But this is what Hebrews 619 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We have an anchor. That's Jesus Christ, his work and God's grace, not our performance. Luke 2019, 2119 says this, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Hope continues to hold on and to act even though our behavior or performance is not perfect. Hope pursues holiness even though we are not holy in our behavior, although we are declared holy by God. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Second, first, first, first act is this, kill 
the fear of evil punishment in the light of God's grace. Second, kill desperation and shame in the light of God's truth. Desperation believes that the thing that which we hope for is either not possible or not to be given. What does is, what is, uh, Cain say when he is sentenced to punishment? He says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Whoever encounters me will kill me. He is a desperate, fearful man. And then God responds with grace toward him. That's desperation. The second is shame, which says there is no possible way that God could love me because of who I am. Guilt and shame differ. Guilt is when you regret what you've done. Shame is when you say, I regret what I am. But the root of this goes down into unbelief. It hears the truth and says, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but then allows unbelief to erase it. God is not gracious enough to answer, we say, although we don't say that out loud because respectable people might think we don't believe. We hide that. We say God's not willing to give the grace to us, but consider Jesus when, when we think God will not be gracious to us or, or that our, our, our inner identity, who we are, is too rotten and horrible for God to show any kindness to. Consider Jesus, Luke chapter 7. When the Pharisee had invited Jesus to dinner and a woman came in and began to wash his feet with her hair and her tears, they judged this woman. The Pharisee said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of this woman is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. She would, he, would, he would know and he would stop her is the intent. He would disassociate herself from her because she is a dirty rat and needs to go away. But listen to what Jesus says. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's the way that Jesus behaves towards sinners. Yeah, but we, we want to know the Father's heart. We want, we want to know what the Father thinks. Because isn't Jesus the kind and merciful one? Like, don't kill the sinners. And God's like, drown them, right? And Jesus is like, no, don't. Ten more minutes, they'll behave. <laughs> Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the exact radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. Just let us see what God is like. And Jesus says this, have I been with you so long and you don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you were in the Father's presence, weeping, washing his feet with your tears, fully aware of how horrible you believe you are and how horrible you are, and so desperate believing it is not possible for God to show you grace, he would say, your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. Use that knowledge as a weapon to kill hopelessness. Faith is the predecessor to hope. Hope grows from and is fueled by faith. Faith takes God at his word in the present. Hope expects that what has been promised will indeed be given. Third and finally, kill the wet blanket 
of hopelessness and doubt in the light of the love of God. Some struggle to hope because what they do is they hear the good news of the gospel, but what they then do is they allow it to be obscured by the wet blanket of law. And they only, they, 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 they think, yeah, that's true for most people, but because I've done this or because the Bible says or because of this command or that command, it cancels out what I've heard. That's allowing yourself to get hit by a wet blanket. You know who threw that blanket? It was either your flesh or the devil, neither of whom are worthy of trust. Those who hear law and not gospel orient themselves with fear and not in saying yes to truth. They, they judge themselves based on their merits and they don't judge God's grace on his heart and on the merits of Christ. Consider the character of God. Is, uh, Exodus thirty three eighteen. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now, now I just want to show you. I want to show you the wet blanket because you're going to be like, see, if you're anything like me. Okay, but don't let the wet blanket cancel out the truth. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfastness, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Oh, that's so good, right? I live in that. And then you think, but there's more to the verse, isn't there? But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Well, that might can't, that probably cancels out every good other thing that's ever said in the Bible, right? It's right there. That's, that's, that's the wet blanket. What we need to say is no. The kindness of God is for those who throw themselves on his mercy. And that our sin cannot cancel out his graciousness when we come to him in faith. And if you allow yourself to be drowned by despair, then you are not reaching to the Father. And hope is battle. You must fight. Let his character be your light in the midst of the darkest storms. As we close, uh, we're going to pray. I just want to encourage you to allow yourself to challenge yourself to, to, to fight forward in faith, believing all that God has said about you in the present. It is true of you because God sent his son as a child so that he would go to the cross, taking your sins from you and giving you his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. Not be good and be accepted by God. Believe it and then hope in all the goodness that will come to you because of God's goodness and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness. We thank you that our, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's not built on, on how good we are today. That's evidence of faith and growth, not evidence of righteousness. 
And so we pray, Father, that, that by your grace and for your glory, that you would help us to distinguish how it is that we're to look to you and cling to you and rejoice in you. We pray, Father, that you would help us to believe in the present and then to allow that belief to, to soak up and lay hold of many good and precious promises and then to hope in each and every one of them as we go forward in our lives. You make promises so that we can say, I have a firm expectation that this is how it will be. We pray that we would hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.